The following is Class 2 on the Yoga Sutras, given by Ridayananda Das Goswami in fall of 2004 in San Luis Obispo. In this class, Sutras 123 to 140 will be discussed. Uh, there's a version of the Yoga Sutras by a renowned scholar that passed away about 10 years ago, Barbara Stoller Miller, who was, I believe, was at Columbia. So in her translation of the Yoga Sutras, she divides the verses or the sutras into topics, sort of in clusters. And so, uh, I mean, she's right. There are topics. And today we begin with the first part of the Yoga Sutras. Remember, there are four parts of the Yoga Sutras, four divisions called padas, or quarters in Sanskrit. And so 1.23, where we're beginning now, means the first of, of the four parts in Sutra 23. So this definitely introduces a new and very important element, and that is uh, Ishwara, which uh, I'll write it with the diacritical marks. The two dots over vowels in the pages you have means it's a long vowel. Ishwara comes from a root. As I mentioned last time, the, the concept of Sanskrit, the ancient concept of Sanskrit is that it's an organic language that grows out of roots, and the roots are verbal. The roots denote actions, and so... This word, which is a noun, Ishwara, which will define Lord or God and so on, ruler, is analyzed as coming from the root Ish. Any mark on an S means it's S-H in Sanskrit. So, the root Ish, which you don't have on your sheet, uh, I added a little bit late, it means to be powerful, to dispose of, not simply just to throw away, but to decide what's going to happen to something to rule, to be master of, to reign. And uh, if any of you know German, there's a German verb which means to possess, eigen. And you can hear it, see the I part, that's related historically to the Sanskrit root, ish. Anyway, uh, Ishwara. Ishwara is a very common word in Sanskrit, which uh, means lord or master. I wrote down, I just took it out from the dictionary, uh, master, Lord, Prince, King, God, the Supreme Being. The importance here is that the Yoga Sutras are, this work is in a sense, you could say lightly or moderately theistic, in the sense that there, God is in the Yoga Sutras. It's not, it's not an atheistic word, work. The typical commentary you hear about the Yoga Sutras is that the theism, the, or the, literally the godism, the, the theism of the Yoga Sutras is very mild. It's not like the Bhagavad Gita where there's a very strong declaration of the supremacy of God and so on. The Gita is a very strongly theistic work. The Yoga Sutras are rather, they mention Ishwara, but again, as I, as I explained last week, and as we'll see in this class, uh, Patanjali is not preaching. He's not trying to persuade anyone to adopt a particular philosophy. He's just, it's like one of the original self-help books that you, nowadays you pick up in bookstores. And so, for example, the same example I gave last week, imagine you were a psychologist. Psychologists are trained to try to work with the values and, and, and the feelings and the history of the particular individual so that Especially nowadays, uh, let's say an individual has a religious background. Commonly a psychologist may say, well, why don't you access that? Why don't you 
turn to that, if that gives you strength, if that gives you shelter, that's something you can take advantage of. It's a resource in your life. And if someone is an atheist, then the psychologist will talk about something else. Well, let's talk about another strategy. And so the psychologist is, so to speak, neutral. It's simply neutral, simply trying to find some way to work with the, the individual. That's, in a sense, what Patanjali is doing. In that sense, it's modern. It, it, this is not a sectarian work. Although, another thing you'll always hear about the Yoga Sutras or about this yoga path, the Yoga Sutras are the foundational work of one of the six great paths in the ancient Vedic or Hindu tradition. And so yoga is a darshan, it's a way of seeing, it's a particular path toward truth, which is based on the Vedas, and there are five other paths. And so these six paths are, are grouped into pairs, as I also explained last week, so that yoga goes with Sankhya. Even in the Gita you'll find yoga Sankhya, Pratabhala, Pratabhala, only the childish say that yoga and Sankhya are different. The, the wise, the pundits know that they're, they're really the same. So, Sankhya, again, reviewing... Sankhya is, is, is philosophy. It's talking about the fundamental principles of reality. What are the fundamental real things in rea that exist? And so Sankhya is the philosophical side. Yoga is the practical side. The yoga path or the yoga sutras are assuming that the universe is basically as described by Sankhya. And then trying to help us to understand within a universe, which is basically as described by Sankhya, how can you achieve enlightenment? How can you be peaceful? How can you get past all kinds of unhealthy states of mind and become the best possible conscious being that you can be? And so because yoga is really, the yoga sutras are really the practical work, the techniques, not the philosophy, uh, here you have this term, Ishwara. And so Patanjali is not going to go into a discourse on the nature of God. He's going to say a few things about it. But his, his intention is, is essentially not philosophical, but just based on the philosophy to tell you how to practice yoga. And even in the practice of yoga, he's not primarily concerned with asanas. He's primarily concerned with the psychology of it. What, what, what needs to be happening inside of you as you're practicing yoga in order to really progress. That's a little review of, of, of the basic framework. So now, one point, it would be, I think, wrong to conclude, logically be wrong to conclude that Patanjali himself is not that concerned with Ishwara or with God, but rather, again, even a very religious person acting professionally as a psychologist, as a lawyer, as a yoga teacher, uh, has to simply do their job and, and not try to impose upon the people within that professional capacity of particular philosophy. In a sense, that's what Patanjali is doing. But it, this is a, a pious work and so he's going to say a few nice things about God. So what does he say? Uh, the first thing he says, it, it, to place this in context because the word va is the last word of this first sutra and va means or, which means something came before. In other words, this, that, or this thing here. So what came before is a description of how you get to a state called, uh, I believe it was um, samprajata, or consciousness. How you get to this state of consciousness. And now Patanjali, Patanjali says that it's also possible by devotion to God. 
And the word pranidana, I, I wanted to show you exactly what this is about. And not spin it. So to, so to protect you from any spin I might put on it, I gave you the definition of pranidana in a footnote there. Because what potentially is saying is one way to get enlightenment is to engage in pranidana. Pranidana just means from this or, or by means of this. Toward Ishra, towards God. So pranidana means laying on, fixing, applying. That's a, a very literal sense, but then it comes to mean idiomatically in Sanskrit, respectful conduct, attention paid to, profound religious meditation, abstract contemplation of vehement desire prayer. So if you put all these together, it really means putting Ishwara, putting the Lord in your mind, in your heart, and, and uh, engaging in a, in a spiritual, profound spiritual meditation on God. And Patanjali says, this will bring you enlightenment. Now he's going to say something about who this Ishwara is. There's not a lot of theology in uh, Patanjali, but just enough to make clear what he's talking about. He's not using the word in a special sense. This is not an esoteric sense. He's just basically, if you understand this culture that he's coming from, he'll say enough about God to show his own piety and to show that uh, he's using the word Ishwara in the normal religious sense of the word for the normal spiritual sense. So he basically gives you that much information. So what he says about it is, Klesha karma vipaka shayai aparamrishta purusha vishesha ishwara And again, it's, it's almost always the case sense if you start from the end and go backwards, it's English syntax. So if you take that text 24, 124, and start from the right side in the end, Ishwara is vishesha, a special or distinct purusha. It's the first thing he says, that Ishwara is a special or distinct or distinguished purusha, aparamrishta, untouched. Not only does not, aparamrishta doesn't simply mean just not, not touched, but it means not corrupted by, not touched by in the sense of not negatively affected by or, or held in, in bondage by, not captured by, and all these things. So it's stronger than just a tactile experience but untouched, uncorrupted by, and then the list of things, klesha, karma, vipak, ashayar. Uncorrupted by klesha, pains, troubles, the, the difficulties that stand between us and spiritual consciousness. Whether it's, you know, the deadly sins, lust, greed, envy, anger, whatever. Just all the troubles, all the pains, all the stuff that, that makes us not pure and serene and enlightened. All those things cannot corrupt Ishwara. That's what he's saying. And karma, karma, in the, in the normal sense, you know, karma, the reactions to our previous activities that condition us and, and in so many ways. So there's no karma in Ishwara. Here is a, well, yes, to answer your question, Purusha does mean person, that's one of the prime meanings. So it's, Purusha is a special person, the controller, because after all, karma is something imposed upon us. It's not something we decide to accept. It's something which happens to us. But if you are the Ishwara, if you're the controller, who's going to impose karma upon you? So, there's no karma, there's no klesha, there's no trouble, there's no karma, there's no vipaka. Vipaka means uh, 
sort of the, the fructifying of your... It, it's related to karma, karma vipapi, but you can take, it, take this as a compound. It comes from the root pach, which means to cook or to mature or to ripen. And so it means that as your karma ripens, as the effects, the consequences of what you've done, what, what you've done in the past, as that starts to ripen and mature into real things that start happening to you, that's vipaka. It sort of makes the word karma a little more precise and, and, and dramatic. Karma vipaka, and then ashaya. Ashaya is a word used a lot in the Yoga Sutra, so I, I got a whole bunch of definitions. It comes from the root, original root she, which to lie down or to rest, and, and therefore shaya can mean a bed or a sleeping place or a resting place. And so as I read the definitions for ashaya, you'll see how these natural idiomatic uh, senses come about. A resting place, a bed, a seat, a place, an asylum, an abode, a retreat. Just like we say. You know, you can say, uh, this is, you can say rest like I'm resting now or a rest can be a place where you go to rest, a, a, uh, a retreat, which is one of the means of Asha, a retreat. It can also mean, therefore, the seat of feelings, where your feelings and thoughts come to rest. The, the seat, not simply where you physically sit down, where your all your mental activity sits down, kind of a resting place for for your for your mind, and then it could mean the heart, the soul, the disposition of the mind, and then in yoga philosophy, there's a special definition in the Sanskrit dictionary for the word as used in yoga philosophy: the stock or the balance of the fruits of previous works, which lie stored up in the mind in the form of mental deposits of merit or demerit until they ripen in the individual's own experience into rank, years, and enjoyment, unquote. What that means is, let's say in your previous life, you did, obviously you did a bunch of things. You just did a lot of things, and so you've got all this karma now. You've got this package. And, and, and so the karma first manifests in the sense that you, you, you're born in a, on a particular planet, in a particular family. You have a certain body which has certain endowments, certain limitations, certain propensities, and so on. So this whole thing, you could, this whole package, is, is, you could say, is your destiny, your karma. Now, obviously, all the karmic reactions couldn't come at once because life would be pretty incoherent, insane, if suddenly like 5,000 things happened to you at once. And yet, as soon as we're born, that whole stock of reactions, it's there. It's, it's a real force within you. And, and so they're stored. And that, that's what the word ashaya refers to. It's that reserve, that resting place where your destiny is stored and it gradually unfolds. That's the sense in which Ishwara or the Lord is special. There's no karma. There's no trouble. There's no pain. There's no stock. Of, there's no destiny imposed upon God. So in all these ways, all these ways Patanjali says that he, in other words, it's a real Ishwa, it's a real God. Although, he's, he's not going to talk about it too much. Now, the word Purusha. The word Purusha, again, first I'll just read you the dictionary definitions. I mean, some of them are extremely rare and not really used. So I sort of picked out the ones that are actually used in the literature. So here are, here are the definitions of Purusha, and I'll run through them and then we'll talk about it. Because here we have the statement, God is a Purusha. So to understand God, so what's a Purusha? So, in, the, in this, going from simple to more sophisticated, a man, a male, a human being, a person, an officer, a functionary, attendant, or servant. I'll tell you how that works, because it's just like we say in English, same thing. 
say like, he's my man, or these are my men. These are my people, you know, like some big guy comes in, yeah, these are my men, they're with me. It's the same thing in Sanskrit. The word purusha could just mean a person, and then it comes to mean your people, like the guy or the people that work with you. And uh, the primeval person. Here, Monia Williams in his Sanskrit dictionary said the primeval man, but that's, it's really the primeval person there. And the original source of the universe. I'll tell you what that's about. The earliest use of the word Purusha, the earliest use in Sanskrit literature of the word Purusha in any meaningful way is in the Rig Veda. Uh, if you've heard of that. Rig means hymn, the, the hymn Veda that has all the hymns that were used in the sacred activities. In the Rig Veda, which is considered universally by scholars, both Hindu scholars and Western scholars, to be the oldest Sanskrit literature. It's really the oldest book in any... Uh, in any language in terms of real... It's not an inscription or, or a, in some stone uh, like we find all these uh, inscriptions and in clay tablets from uh, the Sumerian civilization or things in Egypt, you know, different types of hieroglyphics or, or... But this is a real book. This is a book, with a very not pictographic as we find, say, in Egypt, but with a very extremely sophisticated grammar. It, it's a book. And so... That's, in, it's uh, Rig, I mean, that's sort of the modern way, right? Rig Veda. So in the Rig Veda, there, there are ten books in the Rig Veda. The tenth book is called, it has this hymn, or Sukta in Sanskrit, to the Purusha, the Purusha Sukta. And this is the oldest use of the word Purusha. And the Purusha Sukta hymn is very important within Hinduism, and even before Hinduism, the religion before Hinduism. Basically, the Purusha Sukta is the first social philosophy we have, really, in, uh, in the history of the world. The Purusha Sukta hymn talks about a Purusha, a person, a cosmic person, or a Virat, is the Sanskrit word, a cosmic person. And the universe lies on the body of this person. And so you have all the different elements of the universe, the different physical elements, the different social orders and so on, on the body of this Purusha. And, uh, of course, Patanza was very much aware of all this. So I'm mentioning this because I'm trying to not only... I'm trying to also place you within, within the world that he's living in. He's living in a world in which everyone knows about the Purusha Sutta him. And so... So, in this Purusha Sutta him... The different social orders, like the brahmanas, the priestly or intellectual or teaching class, are, are, are the head of this form. The warriors or the governors are, on, are the arms, and the merchants are the belly, sort of feeding the society. And the workers, <coughs> the working class or the craftspeople are the, are the legs. And so you have this Purusha suit to him, in which the Purusha is identified as God. It's almost like, in, say, medieval times, Aristotle was so influential as a philosopher that if you said, the philosopher, it was Aristotle. So similarly, in this ancient Sanskrit, yoga, Vedic culture, if you said, the person, like with a capital P, it was God. And so you find throughout this Vedic literature that the word Purusha often does mean simply God. The person. But then it comes to mean other people. It comes to mean a person in general. In Sanskrit, when you're talking about a person in general, like you want to give a proverb like, people who, I don't know, people who drive their chariots too fast have accidents. I mean, if you just wanted to give some general rule, they would say Purusha, a Purusha who does this. So it becomes like every man or every person. For Proverbs, it's used in that way also. Now, Purusha also has a very important use in, in Sankhya philosophy. 
Because in Sankhya philosophy, the Purusa is the soul, the conscious being, the conscious living being as opposed to matter. These are the two key terms of Sankhya philosophy and therefore of the philosophy which is behind yoga. The Purusha... It's a, the, the Purusha is the living, conscious being, the soul, as opposed to property or nature, just physical nature. Patanjali makes clear that he's using the word Purusha in the most ancient sense of the word, as in the Rig Veda, to mean God. He, but he says, but, but because Purusha is used in so many other ways, that's why he says it is a Purusha Vishesha. The word Vishesha is used at the end of a compound, Purusha, to mean special, distinct, distinguished, a special person, a distinct person, not like... And so you could say, well, aren't all, indiv- aren't all souls individual? Isn't every soul unique or distinct? Yes. But you have to remember that in Sankhya philosophy, which Patanjali is using here, the word Purusha is used to mean all souls, everybody. And so, er, so all souls, despite their uniqueness, are in the same category. So to say a Purusha Vishesha, a special person, means different than every other soul. And so again, in saying this, Patanjali is being mainstream. Because if you look at the Upanishads, if you look at the ancient literature, he's basically, he's not going to do a lot of philosophy here, but the philosophy he does, he's going to be very mainstream and, and, and he's, he's showing that, but he's being, so to speak, orthodox. The literal sense of these words, ortho, correct, and dox, thought. Sort of standard, correct, Vedic thought. And that's what he's laying out here. He's not trying to be innovative philosophically. Moving right along. So, th- that's the, so Patanjali says that you can get enlightenment if you devote yourself, if you engage in serious meditation on God, and God is a very special person who is not corrupted by all the stuff that bothers us, I mean, all the stuff that we're trying to transcend through yoga, namely, klesha, pains and troubles, or karma, vipaka, the maturing of, our, of the consequences of our karma, ashaya, the whole stock of our reactions and destiny and so on, that this special person is not affected by these things. And therefore, if you... And so it's, the logic is clear. If you meditate upon God or a person who's free of all this, by, that, by being drawn into that realm, you will become free of it also. Because it, it's an ancient principle of this Vedic psychology that you become what you meditate upon. And not that you become God, but in the sense that if you meditate upon... Well, you know, if you, if you think about a bad thing, you'll probably end up... You may do a bad thing if you think about it too much. There's actually an example, you know, just very quick, there's an example given that, 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 a, that a wasp captures a little insect and keeps it there in prison, you know, getting ready to eat it. And so the little insect is so nervous meditating upon what's going to happen that in the next life, the little bug becomes a wasp. <laughs> so that, that's an example it's given. So, I've taken more time for these first things. I want to set the scene. This is, this is what's going on here. Then, potentially says something else about Ishwar, about God. Tatra, there, meaning in God. Near Atishayam Sarvagya Vijan, there's the unexcelled seed of omniscience. This is quite esoteric. For people who like esoteric things, you'd probably have fun with this one. And in the Gita also, God is described as being the seed 
bijam of the young, the unperishing seed. And so, I, I don't want to spend too much time on this, but in this ancient literature, there's a sense of the eternal renewal of things. And so God is the seed in the sense that, the unperishing seed in the sense that there's, there's just eternal renewal of all things. And, and the seed of that eternal renewal is God. And here God is the seed of omniscience. So that our ability to know everything, our ability to be enlightened, our ability to clearly understand reality, the seed of that consciousness that we can attain is Ishwar. And that there's no other seed. This is very interesting because if you look closely at the Yoga Sutras, I think it's inescapably the fact, like the verse we'll come to later in the course, that, uh, that Samadhi Siddhir, that, that through Ishwara Pranidhan, through this devotion to God, you get the perfection of Samadhi, which is, of course, the, of course, the final stage of, of Astanga Yoga. So you not only get Samadhi, but you get Samadhi Siddhi, the perfection of Samadhi. And here we find that the seed of omniscience, Sarvagya, literally all-knowingness, the seed of it is Ishwara, and there's no, near Atishayam, nothing is greater. There's no greater source of omniscience, of clear knowledge of everything, than Ishwara. So if you look closely at the Yoga Sutras, clearly it's, it's tilted a little bit toward Ishwara. I mean, you can, you can see that Patanjali has his own sentiments or his own convictions, which come out. But he offers everything else. You know, if, you, if you're not interested in Ishwara, then he's got all kinds of other stuff for you, but... There's a definite piety here from Patanjali. And then he says again, glorifying God, that Ishwara, Sapura Veshamati Guru Kalenavacheda. Kalenavacheda. That he, Ishwara, the first word is Sa, he, Pura Veshamati, even of the ancients, even of the people that came before, even of the ancients, he's the Guru. And the reason that Ishwara, or God, can be the Guru of the ancients is because God is not restricted by time. And so he's always senior. Everyone else is a junior. So no matter when someone was born, and what creation cycle, and what universe, how many billions of years ago, and they deal with time frames like this in the Vedas, uh, there's one person who's the, the guru of everyone, even of the ancients. And then it said, Tasyavachika Pranava, that Ishwara speaking, the Lord speaking, is Pranava, the syllable Om. So the Om, that famous Om syllable, is simply the speech. It's the speech of God. And now, that's, so the, uh, that's about it right now for Ishwara. So then, but we're going to talk now about Om. Then uh, Patanjali says that Tat Japa, Japa, Tat Japa, Japa of that. Japa, it means chanting in Sanskrit, but it means soft, like in the dictionary it often says muttering, but the word muttering somehow kind of doesn't sound so great anymore in English, so I didn't put it in as a translation. But in other words, not kirtan, not chanting out loud with instruments, but when you just sort of chant to yourself, your own meditative chanting, that's called japa. And it's always one of the processes in yoga, your own private chanting is japa, as opposed to kirtan. And tajapa, chanting of Om, Tadartha Bhavanam, manifests its meaning. If you chant it, it will reveal itself to you. You'll understand what it means simply by chanting it. And then, And from this, one actually attains 
And the actually is in the Sanskrit then. A P. One actually attains internal awareness and obstacles cease to exist. So here, uh, potentially it's said that Om is the speech of God and that if you chant Om, you'll understand the meaning of it and it will remove the obstacles from your path and you will achieve internal awareness by chanting this Om, which is the speech of Ishwara. And then, Dukkha Dormana Syangam Ejaya Tvashvasa Prashvasa Vikshepa Sahabhuva. Misery, Dukkha, melancholy, Dormana. Dur means bad in Sanskrit. And, and so, Dormana, sort of a bad mind when you're in a bad mood. And so, Dormanasya from Dormanas means sort of bad moodness. <laughs> sort of what it means in Sanskrit. So, Misery and just being down, being just being in a bad mood, uh, morose, and your body trembling and troubled breathing. So he says, disease, apathy, uh, doubt, carelessness, laziness, lack of detachment, erroneous vision, just seeing things irrationally. And not, literally not achieving bhumikatwa, which means groundedness. In other words, not, not getting yourself grounded, being too flighty or all over the place. And then again, unsteadiness. So anyone, as I said, practice any spiritual path seriously knows how all these things are a problem. So then, potentially says that along with these distractions come misery, melancholy, bodily trembling and troubled breathing. And to ward off these distractions, Tatpati Shedartan, to ward off these distractions, Eka Tattva Abhyasa, there's the practice of a single truth, of one truth. When Patanjali says that you can be free of distractions if you, what was that again? Abhyasa, uh, if you practice Eka, which means one, one Tattva. In other words, if you have practice focused on a single tattva. But the tattvas are things like the soul or, or, or God or so on. So if you focus on yourself as, as a soul, an eternal soul, or focus on God and just stay and just practice focused on that single truth or principle, potentially says you'll become free of distractions. That's what he's actually saying. That's, according to Barbara Solar Miller, that's the end of that topic. Now we're going to talk about clarity and peace of mind, which is my translation of the word prasadam. Prasadanam, because Patanjali is going to use that word here. So, we have eight more sutras and uh, about 17 or 18 minutes. So, Patanjali says, Maitri karuna mudito pekshanam sukha dukha punya punya vishayanam bhavana chitta prasadanam. Basically, the last word, chitta prasadanam, clarity and peace of mind, chitta, come from bhavana, come from a, uh, how do I translate bhavana? A bringing about, bringing into existence, literally, of these two lists of things. And the way they correlate, as, as I, you look at the translation there, is mentally cultivating friendship. So the, uh, with the happy people. In other words, people who have real happiness, you should cultivate friendship with them. Happy people. 
And uh, so, so the, the word Maitri, friendship, or cultivation of friendship, goes with sukha. That's what I meant to say. That you have to, anyway, I'll stop bothering you with these things. So what it means is that the way you achieve mental tranquility or clarity or peace is if there are people who are truly happy, really, and because, again, you have to understand in this philosophy of yoga, as explained in the Gita, happiness is a result of virtue. So to say someone is happy means a virtuous person. Those two things go together. Real happiness comes from virtue. So therefore, one should cultivate friendship with the virtuous, people who are truly happy, and one should cultivate mercy, compassion toward the unhappy. If you see someone's not happy, and again, in this like sort of very scientific worldview of karma and cause and effect, if, you're, if someone's unhappy, they're doing something wrong. Because if, if, you, if, you, if you read the directions that come with the universe, and the universe comes with directions, and, and, and it's like they say, if everything else fails, read the directions. <laughs> You know, like these people that get these, like, they buy something like a little table and you assemble it in your home and, you know, no, I don't need to read that, I know how to do it. You know, and then finally, when everything else fails, you read the directions. So the Vedas are, so to, speak, so to speak, the instruction manual for, like, the universe. That's what the Vedas are. It's an instruction man, manual how to deal with the universe and karma. So if you're unhappy, you've done something wrong, which means you can fix it. it it's, it's not this sort of, this typical sort of 20th century, mid-20th century existentialism where you're unhappy and the reason you're unhappy is because the universe is stupid and doesn't respond to you. It's not that. You can fix it. If you're unhappy, you can fix it because everything has a reason. So it's a rational system. So if people are happy and virtuous, be friends with them. If someone's unhappy, be kind, be merciful to them. Take joy in piety and neglect in piety. And so that's what, and so he says if you do all these things, you'll be peaceful. You'll be a happy, clear-headed person. Or, again, this is, you know, Patanjali is saying you can do this or that or the other thing. He's, he's, because, again, this is, a, in a sense, a, a philosophically neutral self-help book. So he's going to give all the different paths for, different, for people of different natures. So then he says, or uh, you can achieve this uh, chitta prasadhanam, this clarity and tranquility of mind, uh, from the expulsion and retention of breath by breathing exercises. Now, this is amazing. I thought this is really amazing because for potentially, he's sort of, he's putting sort of on the same level something which is highly ethical. Be, I mean, you know, it sounds like Jesus. Be merciful to those, to, to the suffering. Be merciful to the suffering. Cultivate friendship with virtuous, happy people. And uh, disregard impiety. And, and, uh, and cultivate piety. Very ethical, very moral, or practice breathing. <laughs> which is... <laughs> so again, I think to really get at Patanjali, you have to see him not as someone who's trying to push a philosophy, but just someone writing a manual. These are all the different ways you can get into consciousness. And he's sort of neutral towards which one you choose. Yes? In other words, he's experienced it, and now he's trying to show you these are the different ways you can do it. Or, the va means or, vishaya vitiva pravritti rupana manasakstiti or when object based activity arises holding the mind in place. This is kind of a mouthful. 
vishaya. Vishaya in Sanskrit means an object, something like, like an object of consciousness. It can also mean a, uh, well, I won't go into all the meanings of it, but here it's an object of consciousness. And vati just means uh, prabriti, endeavor, activity, which has vishaya. In other words, an activity which has vishaya, which has some object. An activity which has an object, some purpose. Or, or you're perceiving something. And he says that when that arises, utpana, when that arises, it can nibandhani, it can bind or fix, stiti, in place, manasa, the mind. Fix the mind in its place. Which is interesting. So, so again, the first, the very beginning of Yoga Sutras was stop all the yoga vrittis, right? A, a chitta vritti. Right? Chitta, chitta vritti nirodha. That was the first statement. Yoga is chitta vritti nirodha. Stopping the mind's vrittis, their activities. But here you have the same word, pravritti. You have the same word, pravritti, an activity. And Patanjali is saying that if this pravritti has a vishaya, an object, then when that activity arises, it can actually bind the mind in place. It can hold the mind so it doesn't, the mind's not distracted. Bund, by the way, in Sanskrit is related to running this word bond or bind. So the same ambivalence, not in the sense of, uh, you don't know, you can't make up your mind, but ambivalence in the sense of uh, just too multivalent, just going different ways, spiritually or materially. So then, let's conclude this. Or vishoka, jyotishmati, or activity, which is vishoka, again, vi without, shoka, without grief, without lamentation, and jyotishmati, which possesses light, sorrowless and illuminating activity. So you can act. I mean, this is very interesting. Because the Yoga Sutras are generally thought to talk about meditation, and, and they do talk about meditation. But here, we're talking about pravritti. Now, to understand activity, you can, you can be active in the world and practice yoga. And to understand the word pravritti, I'll just mention very briefly an important fact which Patanjali knew. And again, if you're in this culture, you know these things. Pravritti means you go out in the world and act. And a typical example of pravritti marg is you get married. In other words, you have to deal with, we have to deal with our bodies, obviously. The bodies have a sexual dimension. So how do you deal with, this, with the body's sexuality? The Prabriti Mark says, engage it. Be active. Get married. So Nibriti Mark means you renounce. How do you deal with the body's sexuality? You become a renunciant. You renounce it. You, you become a chagi or a sannyasi or something like that. They're both paths. They're both, you can do either one. So there's pravritti marg, nivritti marg, the path of engaging your desires and the path of restraining them, giving them up. So interestingly, did you have a question? Yeah. Again, these are very basic things and, and, and the yoga sutras are operating within this culture. So therefore, when Patanjali says that you can make it if you have this... Um, if pravritti, which is vishayavati, or pravritti, which is vishoka, because they, it refers to that, or jyotishmati, sorrowless and, and enlightening or, or has light, what he's saying is you can engage, you can engage your body, you can engage your senses, you can be in the world and achieve perfection in yoga if it's done the right way. And this, of course, opens up this incredible dimension which ultimately became the most dominant 
a feature of Hinduism, which is bhakti. I mean, if you look at what, like on the ground, what people really do in this, uh, in, in, in the history of spirituality in that part of the world, it's this devotion, this possibility of devoting yourself, of acting in the world, but in a devoted way. And that can be yoga, bhakti yoga and so on. And so, potentially, he's talking, he's sort of laying the foundation for that possibility by his use of the word pravritti, which again, pravritti marg, it's the path of engaging in the world as opposed to renouncing the world. But another thing is chittam, having your mind, having the mind, a mind in which the objects of the mind, the vishayas, are vitaraga, are free of passion. So if your mind focuses on things that are free of passion, which can mean many things. It can mean hang out with people that aren't real passionate or you know, don't eat a lot of hot sauce. Or, in other words, just uh, sort of cultivate a life which is peaceful and, and sort of avoid passionate things. Sakna nidra jnana lambadam va. Or uh, having a mind, again, I won't go into all the grammar, but alambadam there refers to chittam. A mind which rests on jnana, an awareness of dream and sleep. And just briefly, if you studied, I don't know, cultural anthropology, different, uh, different cultures in the world, I, I know there's a, in, in the northern part of Australia, there's some indigenous people that have a, what I, what I want to say is in the Upanishads, there's this whole discussion of dreams, that sometimes when you sleep, you relax, and, and, and so because you're relaxing, you kind of like, the stuff just comes out of your mind. And you can see what's really in your mind, and sometimes stuff can come into your mind, like enlightenment can come when you're dreaming or sleeping, you can see things because you're sort of open and relaxed. And so th- there's a, uh, a significant discussion in the, in the ancient Upanishads about dreaming and things that can be realized by dreaming. And as I said, I mentioned the, uh, what is it, the dreamland that there's in, in northern Australia, there's these uh, indigenous peoples that have, the, have a whole culture based on dreaming. And so that's what, that's what Patanjali is referring to. He's referring to the Upanishads in here, in here in a sense. He's, refer, he's saying that you can get enlightenment if you sort of figure out this whole dream thing. If you have an awareness. Of, I, mean, I mean, we even have now in modern psychology hypnotic regression. You're putting in sort of a dreamlike state and all kinds of stuff comes out. So all cultures really try to deal with or tap into the possibilities of dreaming and sleep and so on. And so that's what he's referring to here. And now, the, the second to last sutra for today, Yitavi Matadyanava, or from, you can get enlightenment from meditation according to your preference. Abhimata. Abhimata is kind of like your thing, you know, what, what you're into. It kind of sounds in Sanskrit like, you know, what you're into. And so, Yita, according to your preferred meditation. So there, there's personal choice here. Which again is interesting because what we talked about yesterday. Uh, last week, and the whole Purusha thing. It, it's not impersonal. Abhimatta means your personal meditation. You know, the, just what you feel comfortable with, what, what you... And of course, there's a list. It's like going to an ice cream parlor. Let's say, I don't know, is it 32 or however many flavors there are. I mean, you've got to pick one of those flavors. It's your choice, but you've got to pick one of those flavors. So, the Vedic system like, gave you this wide range of meditations, and, and you can pick one, but... I mean, you can't just go out and meditate on an avocado or something. I mean, it's, it's a little bit... Some people think you meditate on anything. And, I mean, in a sense you can. But the possibility of meditating on anything presupposes you understand a universal truth which is in everything. 
And therefore, no matter what you meditate upon, you'll find that universal truth. So in a sense, you're meditating on universal truth and the avocado becomes a vehicle. So that's why claims that, well, I can just meditate on an avocado are somewhat ingenuous or unreflective because the fact you can meditate on anything presupposes a universal truth in everything, which is really the object of meditation. And so therefore, there are kind of like, I don't know if there's 32 flavors of meditation, whatever the list is, but there are... So when it says or your preferred meditation, that should not be taken recklessly to mean you can just sort of invent anything. At least that's not what Patanjali means. That's definitely not what he means. And the last one is Panamanu Vashikara. This is the first mention, this text 140, of what something Patanjali will talk about later, the siddhis, the mystic powers you get from yoga. And he says, one, and it's in, in, implied here, whose mind is clear and tranquil, has mastery, Vashikara, literally making things controlled. From the smallest particle, paramanu, which is a Sanskrit word for atom also. So from the paramanu, the atom or the supremely small, to the supremely great, the person whose mind is peaceful and clear has control. So what does that actually mean? Well, I guess we'll have to read on, but uh, it can mean the control that nothing can tempt you, that nothing can seduce you into material consciousness. It can mean actual power over things, and so we'll see later. Anyway, that's kind of, that's, this, that's what we're going to do today. So any questions on all this? What then? Oh, we brought uh, some refreshments also a little... Yes. As you talk, it seems like there's a very distinct line between the material and the spiritual. Mm-hmm. But is it ever conjoined in any way? Yeah, way? yeah. First of all, speak ontologically in the sense of the nature of existence. In the Gita, and again in the Sankhya system, through Purusha and Prakriti, it's very clear that, that matter and spirit are actually two different kinds of things. It's almost like saying an apple and an orange. There is a real thing that exists, which is spirit. It's not just an attitude, it's not just a... It's a real thing that exists. Soul, spirit. And, and matter, it's real stuff. So both spirit and matter, they're real stuff. And uh, they're conjoined in this Vedic scheme in what is called a hankara, or false ego. Literally, egoism, literally is what it means. The Sanskrit word ahum becomes the Sanskrit Greek, uh, the, Sanskrit, the Greek ego. Just change the H to a G. So, so they're conjoined in, in, in the persona that we now have. For example, now I'm, I'm a person. You know, I, I'm, I'm an American citizen, or you know, I have this body, and you have your body. So, so we are people. We have our persona, and even though there's a soul in there that we're supposed to meditate on, and there's the body, but it all is sort of acting together as a person in the world. And so that person in the world who's a soul, but a soul considering himself or herself to be the body, that, that's what's meant by the, the false ego, the, the soul DBA, doing business as, or considering uh, himself or herself to be a physical person. Now this is not, another very important point, I'll try to do this very quickly, this is not uh, what philosophers call Cartesian dualism. Cartesian means Descartes. Descartes laid out this thing where you know, trying to sort of referee 
the burgeoning scientific establishment in Europe and then the, then the old you know, the church institution which still ruled he's trying to like mediate referee these guys so he said okay okay religion you can have the mind and, and you know science you can have the body and you can have matter so this was criticized this attempt to mediate because how, how do minds and bodies interact like I will to raise my hand and it goes up or someone touches me and, and it affects my conscience so obviously matter and spirit interact so, so this was one of the basic philosophical arguments put against Descartes, and it's relevant to your question here, because Sankhya is sort of a dualistic system. That, let me just finish this thing. So if you have a soul or spirit and matter, how do they interact? And, and, and so the answer is, at least in the, what you get in the Gita very clearly, is that they interact because they're actually sister energies. And I use the feminine term sister because all the words for energy are feminine, like Shakti is a feminine. I mean, words that, generally nouns that end in T, T-I in Sanskrit are feminine words. So Shakti, Prakriti, and so on. So like sister energy is emanating from the same source. So that you can have, let's say, a single apparatus, and, and you, you push this button, and it's an air conditioner, you push that button, it's a heater, or turn the knob, or whatever. So you have this electricity, this one energy electricity that can manifest as apparent opposites, heat and cold. So although the soul and matter in one sense are different, they're both simply different aspects of the single energy or shakti of Ishwara. In fact, there's a famous statement in the Upanishads to that effect, that parasya shakti rividhai vishuyate, that the, the Lord, Ishwara, has a single shakti but it is vivida, it is diverse. And so that single will of God or power of God can manifest as matter of spirit. So because they're coming from the same source and different aspects of the same supreme power, therefore they can interact. So it's not technically a dualism, it's because they're not simply different. Yes, Carl? Yeah, I was going to say it's not a dualism. It's our language problem. Because you have from spirit to matter like a spectrum. And our language doesn't see the difference between the two, but there is a whole gradient in between. There's gradient, but, yeah. but there are boundaries also. For example, Prakriti is held to be, well, the Sanskrit would be Jada, unconscious, whereas we are conscious. Krishna, for example, in the Gita, in chapter 7, distinguishes between Prakriti and, and the soul by saying that the soul is Jiva Bhuta, a living being, whereas Prakriti is not living. So in a sense of gradations, you wouldn't exactly have like, this is not alive, this is a little more alive, a little more alive, a little more alive, until this is fully alive. So, so there is this categorical language, not only in English, but, but, but in Sanskrit, there's this categorical language that this is the living being, this is not living. We've got the ship, seven she's, mm -hmm. and each one is a layer of consciousness. Uh, sometimes, mm -hmm. it's, sometimes it's interpreted as consciousness. what system are you talking about? Yeah, exactly. I mean, it's language, it's the problem of our language and our culture, it's lack of particular awareness and experience of accepting But the idea of the she's, the idea of the she's is consciousness, it would be a somewhat of a, uh, what's the word I want to use? Idiosyncratic version. If you look at the standard text, the she's are she's, coverings of consciousness. So their conscious in the sense that the conscious is coming through that filter. It's like, for example, here's a perfect example. Take this little fixture here. Now, that glass or whatever it is, is luminous because there's light coming through it. The glass itself technically is not luminous, but light comes through the glass. 
So the sheath is like that. It, 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 it uh, what's the word? Conducts consciousness. It's a conductor of consciousness. But the conductor itself is not technically the consciousness, just like the glass is not really the light. But everything is Not that again. That is that would be that would not be the standard view of this literature. You won't find anything like that, for example, in Patanjali. You won't find it in the Gita. You won't find it in the Mahabharata. You won't find it really. I mean, it, again, some people have put forward that view, but and I'm I'm simply trying to give you what the sort of the standard understanding is of these ancient texts. Because to say, now, if it were true that everything was consciousness, why isn't anyone objecting that I'm standing on this floor? I mean, if I, let's say, I brought one of, an assistant in here and said, you know, lie down, and I, I stood on my assistant, I mean, probably you'd have serious moral problems with that. But why does, if the floor, if the floor is really conscious, in the same way that we are conscious, then, then, we, then we could talk about floor's rights. You go from inconscient to consciousness. True, but I'm saying still there is a basic legal distinction we make. I, I, I think, what I'm trying to get at is, I think there are limits to the esoteric. I, I, I think it, it, it comes to a point where we have to, that there are basic, that, that all basic distinctions and boundaries can't be wiped away by esoteric language and, 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 and that there are certain basic distinctions which you find in the Gita, in, in the Vedas, in Patanjali, in Sankhya, everywhere. And so, again, to say that this, let's say, this little metal here is conscious in the same way we are, or perhaps less conscious, I think would not really be what they want to say. And, and so I think that the, the attack on language, the attack on the efficacy of language is something which these authors would resist. In other words, uh, they would say, I'm sure, and, and I, I would agree with them, that language, while imperfect, can be quite effective, and that the, the tendency for language, or, or the ability of language, if not the tendency to be categorical, doesn't merely distort reality, but can actually also reveal real truth, a real truth about the nature of reality. So that there is a fundamental distinction between something which is alive and something which isn't. Something which is conscious and something which isn't. And that's why, for example, we all have clothes on. We don't feel we're exploiting our clothes. But if I, you know, wrap someone around me to keep warm, that would be... So, I mean, does anyone think that they're exploiting their clothes? And yet, if someone is conscious in the way we are, then as Kant said, you know, we should not exploit them or use them as a means to our ends. But every conscious person is an end in themselves. And so in our basic moral instincts, which I think are fairly accurate, when, you know, I mean, they're not perfect, but we have this basic sense that we're not exploiting our clothes, we're not exploiting, you're not exploiting the mat you're sitting on, because it's not a living conscious thing. So, so next Monday is Memorial uh, Day and we will not meet, but we can come together the following Monday. Thank you for being here. Thank you, Jennifer. Thank you.